Welcome to This Is America, April 30th, 2022. On this episode, first we present an interview with somebody on the ground in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who speaks about the recent round of street protests that kicked off following the brutal police execution of Patrick Logoya. We then are joined by Marcella from Feel the News as we discuss Eric Adams, the eviction crisis in New York, and attacks on the houseless community. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. Over the past week, thousands continued to take to the streets in Grand Rapids, Michigan, following the police murder of Patrick Logoya, a refugee from the Democratic Republic of the Congo who was killed by Grand Rapids police on April 4th. Logoya was fatally shot in the head while laying face down on the ground following a police traffic stop. Following Loyoya's murder, protesters held the streets for hours each night, essentially laying siege to the embattled police station. There was also a rowdy nighttime solidarity demonstration in Portland, Oregon. As double-sided media wrote, on the evening of April 16th, nearly 50 people in Black Block gathered at Portland's Pensilla Park for a vigil in March in honor of Patrick Logoya. A local Starbucks coffee shop was the scene of both window smashing and fireworks launching. The nearby bus stop, one of several throughout the night, was also smashed. Banks, too, had their windows smashed and received spray paint. The crowd arrived for its apparent destination, the Portland Police Bureau's North Precinct, after about 45 minutes and confronted a rooftop police officer with fireworks. Three PPB cruisers full of officers in riot gear appeared shortly after a dumpster inside the precinct's parking garage was lit on fire. The crowd dispersed in various directions as soon as the police arrived. According to a press release from the police, no arrests were made. As Canadian Tire Fire and It's Going Down has been reporting, actions in solidarity with the wet Sweden and against coastal gas leak remain ongoing. In so-called Olympia, according to a communique posted to Puget Sound anarchists, on April 20th, some anarchists, armed with a bottle of brake fluid and a can of expanding spray foam, carried out an act of solidarity with the ongoing resistance of wet Sweden land defenders and their supporters. The fight against CGL, or Coastal Gas Leak, and its funders has been long and inspiring, and one that we feel needs to be more supported, especially through direct anarchist tactics. The Colonial Project is ever-expanding. Its allies and funders are in every neighborhood on every street. These are our enemies and the maker of artificial deserts. They must be attacked by any means and at any given opportunity, no matter how big or small the enemy or the action may seem. We do not expect this small action to stop the Leviathan and bring about healing to this near-destroyed planet, but we hope to channel the spirits of the land, the lifeblood of all water, and the goblins of anarchy. We wish to inspire destruction to all manifestations of colonial power and institutions. We need it. The struggle on Wet'suwet'en territory is one that has explicitly called for and employed anarchist tactics, and we encourage you all to heed that call and support their actions through your own. Meanwhile, in a communique posted to Montreal Counter Info, another group wrote, 
Over the past two months, the RCMP has ramped up their continued harassment and intimidation of the people living at and defending the Yinta from the coastal gasing pipeline on the Gitabundin territory. A few days ago, cops decided to arrest someone using the pathetic excuse of misidentification. We believe that active solidarity is always important, even more so when our comrades are facing repression. This solidarity can be expressed through easy attacks, which break the isolation and fear that the state tries to trap us within. Those involved in funding the pipeline have names and addresses. They may not always be easy to find, but usually they are the ones trying to protect their peace and tranquility, tucked away in big houses, far from the social war that they are a part of. With this in mind and rage in our hearts, this past Wednesday we decided to spend the evening in the streets of Westmount. Using a fire extinguisher filled with paint, we had a good time vandalizing the facade of the home where the Royal Bank of Canada president lives. Back in Portland, a claim of responsibility took credit for a sabotage action in solidarity with the expanding struggle to defend the Atlanta forest. A communique posted to Rose City Counter Info wrote, the doors, windows, and ATMs of Bank of America Financial Center were broken, and the building was redecorated with messages against the destruction of the Atlanta forest. Bank of America was attacked because of its funding of the Atlanta Police Foundation and the Cop City Project attempting to replace the forest with police infrastructure. Fuck cops, fuck banks. From the West Coast, solidarity to those defending the forest. Not to be left out, another communique posted to IndieBay.org stated, Two banks' ATMs were vandalized and put out of commission in San Francisco, in solidarity with land defenders in the Atlanta forests and across occupied lands. You can do it too. The week of so-called Earth Day, autonomous hooligans superglued the card readers at two at San Francisco banks. This echoes anti-bank and anti-civilization actions across other occupied territories see Philly, Quebec, and Chile, and strikes against capital and those funding the destruction of human and non-human animals alike. In other Defend the Atlanta Forest news, Reeves Young, an Atlanta-based construction contractor, has officially backed out of the so-called Cobb City project. Forest defenders and abolitionists are still calling, however, for maybe actions to pressure other construction firms to drop the Cobb City project as well. Check out our show notes to find out if there is an office near you. There is also a call for a week of action to defend the Atlanta forest from May 8th to the 15th, and marches and rallies are already being called on May 11th and May 14th. Looking towards the Midwest and Minneapolis, following more ongoing encampment evictions, several public works trucks were targeted through direct action. A communique posted to Abolition Media Worldwide stated, Thursday night, some angry people smashed tires and smashed up a few trucks, disabling three vehicles belonging to Public Works Department of so-called Minneapolis. This was done in retaliation for the cruel eviction of an encampment the day before, in which 120 pigs were mobilized, shutting down two city blocks in order to destroy neighbors' homes and steal their belongings. During the eviction, one encampment defender was brutally arrested. The truth is that an eviction carried out in such excessive force is only done because the state is terrified of the strong relational networks of those who make it their homes and tents and of their neighbors willing to defend them. We intend to give them something to be scared of. 
It is imperative to develop a language of revolt involving a rhythm of retaliatory actions against the state's brutality. The people of so-called Minneapolis are mobilizing to defend our neighbors, and this fight will continue until the final dissolution of the American plantation. It's time to fight dirty. According to a corporate news report from so-called Seattle, several other people also fought dirty, taking action against ongoing attacks against the houseless. The article reported, Vandals smash windows in city cars at a Seattle Parks and Recreation office building in downtown Seattle. The people behind the damage also left a spray paint message. You sweep, we strike. Also in Seattle, Washington, around a thousand people gathered for a mutual aid fair put on by a variety of autonomous groups across the Pacific Northwest. In Hartford, Connecticut, a Black Lives Matter group organized the anti-fascist demonstration in March, following a flash demo by a neo-Nazi group the week before. In the Bay Area, rebel youth and community members on the Berkeley-Oakland border rain down a righteous barrage of eggs against a far-right convoy, pushing them out of the area. In New York, police continue to make arrests of houseless people on the so-called Anarchy Row who are demanding housing. And in Bloomington, Indiana, the strike by graduate workers continues at Indiana University, with workers and students organizing sit-ins, walkouts, and holding pickets which have stopped deliveries. And now for some upcoming events. On April 30th, there's an anti-racist mobilization against the white supremacist rally at Stone Mountain, Georgia. Also on April 30th, there's a spring zine fair and anarchist carnival in Seattle, Washington. On April 30th, there's a May Day benefit at the Bloodfruit Info Shop in Chicago, Illinois. Then on May 1st, May Day, there are May Day events in Chicago, Olympia, Eugene, Oregon, Aberdeen, Washington, Portland, Oregon, there's a May Day block party in Potluck, in Everett, Nebraska, an anarchist book fair in Denton, Texas, in Birmingham, New York. There is a May Day celebration at Riot Act Books. In D.C., there is a celebration at Malcolm X Park. In Atlanta, Georgia, there's a May Day celebration at Grant Park. There's a May Day barbecue in New York at Woodbine. There's a day of action to stop Cop City being called for in defense of the Atlanta forest. And also in Montreal, there's a May Day mobilization called by the IWW and Convergence of Anti-Capitalist Struggles. There's also a call for a week of action to defend the Atlanta forest from May 8th to the 15th. On May 11th, there's a march to demand AT&T pull out of the Cop City project in Atlanta. And on May 14th, there's a march against Cop City in Atlanta as well. From May 20th through the 22nd, Woodbine and Symbiosis are hosting a Northeast Regional Gathering. On June 5th is the Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair in Oakland. From June 25th through the 26th, the Autonomous Tenant Union Network is hosting their first convention in Los Angeles, California. From July 29th to the 30th is the Dual Power Gathering. And on August 6th to the 7th is the Montreal Anarchist Book Fair. Then on August 13th through the 21st is the Institute for Anarchist Troublemaking's Anarchist Summer School. Finally, on September 18th, there is a Pushing Down the Walls event in Southern California to benefit political prisoners. And finally, if you value what's going down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis and you have the means, please go to itsgoingdown.org shop. And that's itsgoingdown.org shop and help us grow. You can sign up to become a monthly supporter or give us a one-time donation. You can follow the podcast, check out our RSS feed, 
follow us on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Listen to us on the radio. Tell a friend about us. Follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. And finally, if you enjoyed this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us. Enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon. This is Susan Samples. I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've lived here for about 18 years and yeah, I'm down to talk about whatever. So, Okay, great. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, I guess just to start out, obviously there's been a lot of protests in the streets after this horrific killing, but you're in an interesting situation because you're spending time both in Minneapolis and in Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. Maybe lay out for us just a little context from what you've seen, like, um, because this is sort of one of the first big waves of protests we've seen since the George Floyd uprising has kind of like, I don't want to say passed, but certainly, you know, there's not been a lot of street activity in the past, like, year or so. What kind of context are you walking into with this stuff sort of exploding again on the streets, would you say? Yeah, for sure. Um I would say, so, I, I mean, that's hard to talk about without <laughs> talking about the uprising in 2020, but, um, you know, for the most part, like, here in Grand Rapids, we've seen, like, I would say one day of riots in particular, which was on May 30th, and that was literally every window downtown broken $2 million worth of damage done, structure fires. I mean, it, it was like the 1911 furniture strike to 1967 riots to like, you know, two years ago. Um, so very monumental. And since then, it's been pretty quiet. I think a lot of towns have kind of faced that sort of dynamic of like, you know, <laughs> yeah, craziness happening in the streets in their downtowns or wherever certain business districts just getting destroyed and then a harsh clampdown happening. And I, I really see that in the city here. Definitely. Um, with the murder of Patrick Leoya. Um, I mean, you can just see it preemptively happening here by way of barricades, being thrown up around the police station, downtown, windows being boarded up, just every preemptive measure possible playing out. And I mean, that's, yeah, the salt trucks out, which in the North here in the Midwest, that means the city brings out their salt trucks and plow trucks, which is for barricading the streets or pushing protesters out of the streets. So yeah, we've, We've definitely seen that happening on the city's end, jumping into action right away, for sure. Like, we'll talk about just sort of the dynamics in the crowd in a bit, but mm-hmm. do you have anything to say, like, in terms of just, like, has the spirit of the uprising, like, has that, like, influenced people? Like, would you say that, like, the folks that you're seeing out protesting now are, like, a whole another generation of folks, or is it a mix of people that were out before? Or it's kind of hard to qualify. 
It's everything. I mean, it's a mix. It's a whole new generation leading everything for sure. And like the internet and, you know, the ways that that's played a role in everything is like totally changed the train completely. Do you want to just kind of walk us back and start us at the beginning? Like, how have you seen things played out? It seems like there's been a lot of people out on the streets and they just kind of continued to, to go mm. out. There's also been lots of like police barricades. It seems like the police are kind of like <laughs> setting up a lot of like defensive perimeters around mm-hmm. their stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, so the murder took place like, you know, over 10 days ago now, um, it's just kind of getting traction on national news. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Patrick Leoya was stopped. He's a 26 year old black man from the Congo. Um, part of the refugee community here on the Southeast side of Grand Rapids. And he was pulled over, stopped, got out of his car, told to get back in. It seemed to be like there was some kind of language barrier going on. Um, there was a scuffle between the officer, the single officer who pulled him over. He had no weapon on him or in the car. Not that that would matter anyway with what happened. But, um, you know, he was shot in the back of the skull. And uh, that's not the story that was first put out in the news. So, yeah, uh, super tragic, terrible situation that happened um unfortunately not uncommon um yeah and his family responded i don't want to use like a blanket term or like a vague term like community but you know people responded to this obviously and especially responded even more when the footage came out of um you know, what happened with the body cam footage and the cruiser footage and bystander footage and, um, you know, front porch home security footage. And yeah, I mean, there, it, like people were up in arms even prior to all this stuff getting released, but he, you know, like I, to be honest, I didn't know the guy, um, but seemed to be what very well loved and, and who the fuck cares, right? Like <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, the, the man was shot in the back of the skull. Um, he was a father and a brother, definitely a prominent community member within his community. And people really, really turned out and responded pretty quickly prior to this footage getting released. And um, yeah, I think like, you know, when that happened, when there was a call, especially from the family to show up, people definitely do in those situations. Um, And there was right from the get go, a very strong demand to see, you know, body cam footage, cruiser footage, everything like that. So. Do you want to talk about just like what it was like out in the streets? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say the Saturday following the murder, there was a lot of attention paid towards the neighborhood where he was murdered. Um, 
that is not the area where the precinct is. Um, that's downtown. So probably the footage you're referencing was, you know, days later after that. But yeah. Uh, so faction wise, you know, there's like the Royal Black Panther Party of Grand Rapids, the new black or young new Black Panther Party. I don't know. There are two prominent groups um, who were kind of like, you know, we care about what the family has to say. We want to respect their wishes, but also like, this is not just about Patrick, you know, it's about all of us. And And it's an open carry area there, right? Oh, oh, I mean, this is Michigan. Okay. (laughs) Like this is very much, I mean, like you are familiar with militias here. I'm sure we've made national news (laughs) and I would say that, like, honestly, that that transcends beyond the right, right? Like it is we don't really have a leftist world here or like a liberal world or any kind of hippie residue left over from the 60s. Nothing like <laughs> that. Very much like, <laughs> you're right. Well, that's how I look at it. You heard it here <laughs> on It's Going Down. No hippie residue in Michigan. No fucking like hippie it. residue in Michigan, in, in Western Michigan, in Western Michigan. You go to Ann Arbor, you might see something different. Detroit you might see something different. But not that I want to speak for here, but like literally we don't have a fucking food co-op or a, well, we kind of have a bike co-op, but like, yeah, there's nothing left over here. Like it's, I hate to say black and white, but it, people know what they want here. It's, there's no wishy-washiness. There's no hippie nothing. Um, so when you look at the climate or like the political landscape here, it is very much gun toting people, um, on all sides. Right. And I would say like, if you, I don't want to call them kids, but like, if you look at like Antifa, for example, there's like, you know, the other day I was out in the streets and I saw a kid with like an assault rifle in literally two handguns on his hips like people love their fucking guns here so yeah definitely open carry um people really show up with that and that's definitely the presence in the streets right now with this situation for sure so do you have any feelings on that (laughs) i know that there's (laughs) i know there's been things like uh i know people in michigan have pushed back against uh, mm. people like Boogaloo Boy showing up. I mean, you brought up militias. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do I have thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Because, I mean, for some people listening to this, I mean, mm-hmm. that's just, it's incredible to hear because they don't live in a place where there's open care. Sure, sure. To me, I can't imagine not living in a place like this. So, I, I mean, I live in Minneapolis part-time, but people carry, you just don't see it as much. But, yeah, I mean, here it's like gangs or, you know, Antifa folks who are packing, like, and like rolling deep. Um, you know, I, I, it's hard to think of like prominent leaders or not even prominent leaders of any of these parties or organizers, whatever you want to call them, without vests. You know, they're very, very heavily. <laughs> armed or protected so that's that's my norm and so my opinion is just or my feelings around that is just uh, that's what i'm 
very much used to seeing. So yeah, it's, it's very easy to acquire that. (laughs) Is there sort of like a, a demand out in the streets right now? I know people are saying that like they want the officer fired obviously, or sent home without leave. Is, Is there sort of like goals that people have or. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that kind of speaks to not having a left here or like not having liberals or the quote hippie residue. Like, I'm not going to try to say that people don't know what they want, but you'll hear, you know, like we could get into office or we could run for city commission or this or that. But like it, it's not comprehensible for the most part, in my opinion. Um, as sort of all who, over the place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, the dominant narrative is just militancy. Yeah. Is yeah. there is there a feeling of peace policing? I saw some tweets where like some of the journals were saying like mm-hmm. organizers are trying to get people to go home and some people aren't stuff like that. You know, like I mentioned earlier, in terms of the family saying, you know, we don't want a protest or we want peace. We don't want violence, this or that, which means, you know, a myriad of things to all kinds of different people, of course. Um, but uh, to me, I mean, here, peace police right now looks like younger folks with guns, with vests, kind of directing the crowd and saying, hey, if you're an accomplice, do this or don't do this. Um, so that's that looks very different, you know, compared to like the Iraq War era <laughs> or something else. You know, when we think of like conventional peace policing, I would say. I feel like in the past you would hear like, you know, people shouting things at protesters to like calm down or like peace policing looked like physically intervening with the body right or like wearing a yellow vest or something and nowadays it's like people in bulletproof vests (laughs) saying hey step the fuck up well where do you see things going from here are there going to be continued protests or is there sort of uh like a lull right now yeah i mean so they've been going on like you know nightly for a while um Which is cool. I just, I don't know how long that kind of energy is going to last and how long it will sustain itself. It, to me, it feels like it's just like waiting for the next big thing to unfold, you know, right? Like the officer's name or like additional footage or something. And then people will show up and, and that's cool. Like, you know, Saturday night was like really rowdy and people had like a dance party in the street and like, that was really cool. Um, you know, who knows how long that this sort of thing is going to last. I feel like people are still like coasting on fumes from the George Floyd uprising, (laughs) you know, to an extent, like not to just like chalk everything up to that or like not to say that this isn't a new thing unfolding, but I think it is a lot to sustain, especially in a city of our size. So, yeah, I mean, I think it just brings up such a key question. What are the struggles after this look like? What is kind of the next steps when you're at that point? Yeah. I mean, your guess is good as mine. I mean, for 
yeah, like here Saturday night or like a Friday night, that's going to look different than a Wednesday night. Right. And what I've seen is just, yeah, people like dancing hard, like smoking weed, you know, just partying in the streets and like, that's all cool and fine and everything. And like a bear cat or bear cat, no bear cat, right? Like the tank. Bear, bear cat, thing. bear claws <laughs> is a donut, I believe. Is a donut, right? Thank you. <laughs> we'll like roll by and like make an announcement about the noise ordinance, and it's like, all right, you know, like I do legal observing for the most part these days, so it's just like, all right, so people are gonna get arrested pretty soon here if folks don't leave, and I'm, you know, definitely not encouraging like quelling of any sort whatsoever just because something like that happens and people don't really bad an eye at that when that happens but it's also like this weird game of chicken kind of like you know the cops are tired the protests are tired and yeah it, it next steps are just kind of hard to predict i think i think that the city is so well prepared now. And I imagine this is the case in other towns as well. After the uprising, you know, like spring 2020 when shit happened or that summer is like police departments know what to do kind of, you know, or like know how to respond or like have gotten funding to quell all of these situations. So, and they don't want to look bad, especially you know, here, like you just shot a guy in the back of the skull. Like you're not going to do anything that's like going to look really fucking terrible. You know, has there been a lot of people arrested? No, nobody. Like as someone who does legal support, no one that I've known so far. Has there been like anybody from the far right showing up? Yeah. Yeah. We had a van the other night run someone I wouldn't say over but you know they were like rolled up onto the top of their minivan onto the windshield kind of onto the roof um people sadly are kind of used to that sort of thing here it might not really make the news but it's just like yeah it's Michigan the militia are just fucking assholes you know anywhere too are gonna show up and haggle people or you know try to get people going so do they seem like a little less activated because the state ended federal mandates and mass and stuff kind of a tricky question i think for here because plot against the governor and kidnapping her and all of that like being in court (laughs) january 6th and all the we try you for closing the gyms (laughs) right Well, I mean, I I think it goes deeper than that, too. Like, I think they're dealing with their own shit right now. Um, Definitely people will roll by. But, I mean, it's like fire against fire here. Not saying it's being exchanged, but, like, people pack and they pack. So, I don't know. At, like, some point it's like, does this just kind of even out? Like, not to sound that dismal, but. Yeah. Interesting. Might not be comparable to other places. Um, well, anything else you want to talk about or go over? Obviously, this is like an unfolding situation. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's kind of early on. We'll see what transpires. Um, yeah, I think, you know, some of the cases surrounding, like I just mentioned, the 
kidnapping plots and the militia and, you know, the far right is interesting and pretty unique to hear. Um, and I think, I honestly think that national news loves that shit and like eats it up. And I think that's, you know, people want to see that shit. They don't want to hear about like a cop killing a guy, you know, it's just like old hat, I think in a lot of ways. And yeah, it's fucked up. It's terrible. And it's devastating. You know, it's, it's so hard to like, just seeing the way that this is like become so normalized, obviously everywhere, right. In the U S but like just firsthand seeing the family like weep and yeah, just hundreds and hundreds of people show up for this guy. Like, it, it, I mean, it's just like, wow, like it's so clear how huge of a community he was a part of. I've been on the lift of fist, spit the resistance shit since 96 or since time and a bit grip the mic, spit the rhyme that split the mind into bit size and design lines to politicize my gift into paradigm shifting. Gone distances, long distances, armed with mic like bombs and bricks. And I rap this with the blacklisted, the black banner lifter, anarchists. My jams have been banned from Christmas, man. Too damn anti capitalist. Smash system, crash the market, smack this shit. Out of the fascist talk with bars that crack the whack bizarre The mob at the wall getting larger, larger, large. I talk shit with my fist in the ball of it. At all of it, cops, bosses, and economists, and the columnists, electoral politics, charity, violent doctor, lawyer, court order, news reporter. I march my shit to Mordor, record and perform to kick down doors with it. Ramp the anti-authority, block corridor, road, rail, and port. With words that the wage a war with it, throwing shade at all they prominence. And they dominance. And all of it. I want you get mad. I'm calling it law bricks it it slingshot ballistic rock my talk is toxic to the profit causing losses that put the company to coffin boom bap it off them boot stomp all the bosses stock options I'm blue collar black melaclava defend water son daughter stand for the land and the causing sabotaging they bougie snob shit cool they claw smash they heads in I'm the cure for affluenza wrath and vengeance and rap descent at them one percent Sent in the next of kin, stabbing pen hits, booming kick, looming shit fan. I'm the hit man. man. I want, I want, I, I, I want, I want to get mad. Got, 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 you got to get mad. I want you to get up now. Get up now. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up now. Get up now. Get up, get up, get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now. Got to get mad. Okay, we're back again for another week, and once again we have a very special guest. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself once again, if anybody doesn't know who you are? 
Hey, y'all. Marcella Onyango. I host Field and News, a news comedy show with a sense of humor and anarchy. <laughs> I've never said it like that. I feel like I have to be professional because I have this mic now. <laughs> Well, we're going to start off by talking about <laughs> stuff that's going on in your neck of the woods, and unfortunately, it's not really anything funny, <laughs> but uh, um, it, I don't know. Give us a crash course. I mean, talk to us about is, Eric Adams, I guess, to start off with. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Eric Adams, and it is funny if you're a terrible person. Um, yeah. So Eric Adams, like, uh, like I feel like maybe it was like, I want to say a month ago, announced that he wanted to... Um, like sweep which is such a gross word to use like homeless encampments all over the city he started off by saying that he wants to clear off the homeless people from the subway and essentially called them a cancer which is so weird because i would argue eric adams is in fact the cancer but that's a different story um so yeah so they're sweeping um homeless encampments they swept over over 300 homeless encampments um they're harassing homeless people and, you know, people are asking Eric Adams, where are these people going? Where are these people going? And he's like, we're going to give them dignity. And I'm like, dignity? How? You're throwing away their sh-. Nobody likes to go to congregate shelters. So, like, only five people of all the people that they've swept have agreed to that. So it's a raw deal. Nobody wants to do that. Yeah, so essentially Eric Adams has is, like, going after homeless people in, like, just, like, a really terrible and painful way. And I, I'm upset about it, y'all. That's why I don't have any jokes today. I'm just really mad. <laughs> It's just awful to see like what's happening and parts of me can't help to think that this has a lot to do with the fact that like there are over 200,000 like people currently going through the, in like going through like the eviction court process. Um, and like just to scare those people. Also, um, there are like 50,000 homeless people and 200,000 empty apartments in New York City. That's like somebody telling you like, there's no water and like you're standing right next to like, I don't know, a waterfall or something. You know what I mean? It's like very messed up. Um, but yeah, that's what's happening in New York City. If you did not know. Yeah. We were talking about before that just there's this eviction wave that's sort of like in the courts right now. And there's so, mm-hmm. so many people that are potentially facing eviction. They're like running out of public defenders. Yep. What's what's that like on the ground? Are you like, do you know people that are like potentially going to get evicted or stuck in that process? Um, well, like you know, I flyer for my building current. Like I'm, we're like our building. Like we we'll meet, um, we we'll meet like every other week or like maybe once a month to like discuss like issues in our building. Um, just because it's like a sh- building, and I flyer like our the buildings around us because we're all it's owned by one management company to like get people to come to the meeting and. This is the first time this has happened when I was flying. I saw three eviction notices and that's just like one building that was like that I was flying. So that's what I have seen. I luckily, I mean, I know people who are going through eviction, but I don't personally know them. I just know like from like the community and stuff, people who are going through eviction and it's really hard and it's really frustrating. Um, the, the Brooklyn eviction defense uh, did this thing where people burned their eviction notices outside uh, a court, like, I want to say like a month or two months ago and it was still cold and it was like a lot of people showed up Um, and it's, I can't see it because I have the privilege of not being able to see it. But when I'm in the community, I see and I hear things and it's really bad and people asking for help for rent that has increased. Yeah. It's looking real desperate. And what I can see is obviously the people sleeping in the subway and people who are homeless. 
and they want to hide that. I mean, I guess on the good side, there's a lot of different groups that have sprung up. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There's so many groups who are currently on the ground. Like there's, um, as I said, the Brooklyn Eviction Defense Bank Fund. There's a Washington um, uh, Park, uh, Washington Square Park Mutual Aid. They've actually been doing a lot of good work. So if you want to give somebody money to help, go to the Washington Square Park Mutual Aid uh, Twitter and, like, help them out. But, yeah, there's, like, people on the ground currently trying to – like anarchy row was like a really stronghold like people mm-hmm. would show up the community would show up and defend and the cops like got there and like arrested people but people were like really coming together to like stand up for like their homeless comrades people are donating tents people are like putting their bodies between them and the cops people are recording this people are taking pictures so it's like the way that people on the ground have really gone come together and it's a lot of organizations that have just come together immediately to like not let this just go you know I guess I don't want to say unpunished, but like just not let this roll over people has been like really impressive. Um, I, I've honestly felt just really for the first time proud to be a human in a while. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I saw on social media, um, the police under the, it's called the SRG, I believe, or special response. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 It was started in like 2015 for like anti-terrorism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they're using like whatever terrorism, whatever that means. I would say they're the terrorists. I don't know, whatever. Like these are the people who like were supposed, you know, when like the shooting that happened in Brooklyn. Uh-huh, instead yeah. of like going and like making sure that we're all safe, which we all know it's a life, the police, they're like go- attacking homeless people. <laughs> like what? What type of backwards reality do we live in? And they didn't even do anything there. It was like somebody else that caught him, right? Yeah, so what, okay, so what's even worse is that the co- the only cop that was there, his radio wasn't working, and he told them to call 911, and when that guy turned himself in, the cops were too late, and so he left, like, he literally was like, come and get me, and they were like, we didn't really know if we want to come, I don't know what they were thinking, probably just playing Candy Crush on their phones, anyway, so they showed up late, and then he was gone, and then the bodega guy had to call him, and then Eric Adams wouldn't even, like, give the bodega guy, an, like, a reward for, like, finding him. He was installing surveillance cameras. That's mm-hmm. his job as like a surveillance camera installer. <laughs> and like the, I think the surveillance camera that was by where the shooter was, like didn't work or something like that, ironically or something. Yeah. I don't like remember. I don't remember the details. I just remember everybody was like, you know, somebody, I think when somebody tweeted, uh, defund the police, fund the bodega. Right. Bodega people. I think it was Sharia Mattis as a comedian. And it's like, we're literally giving them all this money for lies. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a lie. Like, we're giving them money to harass us. We're giving them money. It's like the equivalent of like paying your bullet to like beat your ass every day. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah SRG, which is like a terrorist, whatever, blah, 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 police, they're attacking homeless people <laughs> instead of like actually doing what their job is, which obviously leads you to know that that is actually not their job their job is to terrorize and harass homeless people literally like taking all their stuff and just like throwing it away very aggressively throwing it away you have not i saw this video and this guy was like we already have nothing and you're gonna take whatever little we have and like put it in the trash like what is the cruelty that eric adams is just displaying is like whoa yeah it reminds me of there's a tent encampment at the Boise Capitol in Idaho, and it mm-hmm. was like houseless people set it up to demand one access to housing and two an end to police harassment. 
and the government, you know, the, the state capital government responded by uh, sending the police out and then like taking all their stuff and throwing it away. So they would just like come into people's, you know, tents because there was actually a law on the books for Boise that says you can legally have a 24 hour tent protest. So they were legally allowed to be there. But they would go inside and they would take all their blankets. And this is like in January. So it's like freezing cold. It's in Idaho. So it's like snows on the ground and stuff. So they were like taking people's like warm stuff. So they would freeze to just get them to leave. It was, you know, disgusting. I mean, like, that's just like such a different level of like jerk. You know what I mean? Like, and for you, you know, it's like, it's like. You know, people are like, it's a job. But it's like, if somebody was like, hey, here's a job for you to, like, literally bully and beat the out of people every day, who do you think is going to apply to that job? Bullies, right? Like, I mean, I don't understand. Like, and so that's why people are like, not all police. I'm like, actually, all police. Because if you see a job description, it's like, your job will be beating everybody's ass. And you're like, that sounds okay. Great. I'll take it. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you are, like, they're all bad. Like, if you, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. It's just like, but I, again, it just comes down to the fact that like this whole structure is like based on violence, right? Like the police are here and they're stopping violence, but they're not stopping the violence that we think they are. They're, 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 they're stopping the violence that would occur from people who are tired of getting their asses beat. You know what I mean? Like these capitalists are taking everything from us. They're stealing our time. They're stealing our freedom. Any reaction to that would be to fight back, right? Yeah. That's the violence that the police are preventing. It's revolution, right? Like, so to some extent they are, but I would argue they're preventing violence from happening to people that like, that is the natural result of somebody having somebody smack you in the face 50 times. Like you're going to want to like, like stop, you know? Well, like you said, like how long can so many people that like don't have housing just be around so much vacant housing, you know? Yeah. Like you said, I mean, there's a reason there's so many police in New York, you know, just to like, cover that contradiction in just a wave of cops and violence and but at the same time too you know again there's just these massive contradictions like if if you get rid of everyone in a big city like that they can't afford to live there like who's gonna mop the floors who's gonna yeah who's gonna get your food exactly yeah you know what they're gonna do they're gonna like push us all outside the city and they're gonna turn this into a little playground and they're gonna bring us in in buses like <laughs> <laughs> that's what they do in San Francisco. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> kind of what they do in San Francisco. A that's exactly bit. what I was trying to to say. Yeah. <laughs> or or you know like a lot of um you know we did a whole thing on automation on it's going down, but like some of the theorists around like you know automation have said like oh well, this is the solution to the gentrification problem. Like if all your workers can't afford to live there, we'll just have the robots <laughs> flip the burgers. Yeah. That is a sick idea. That is awful. Who is this person, and why is he being allowed to write or say anything? That is atrocious. So what you're essentially saying is that if these little peons, whose only purpose is to serve and work for you, if they can't afford to live to serve to serve you around, you just push them away and get rid of them. Like what? Yeah, this is the uh, what I've referred to as the cannibalism phase of capitalism, um, <laughs> because at some points you start to run into the problem. And- I'm sure this will happen in New York where all of a sudden there's no one to consume the stuff that you're providing or trying to sell people. And so when there's a million vacant apartments in New York city, cause no one can afford it, well, the prices start coming down and people start losing money. Right. It's one of these like really strange, like cybernetics theoreticians had, had talked about this for, for years, but there's this kind of inflection point in which 
the drive to eliminate the worker in capitalism ends up actually eating itself, right? Like it destroys the economy. Um, nobody seems to be caring about that right now because we're definitely in a headlong drive towards uh, eliminating as many workers, inconvenient tenants, people who live on the street, blah, 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 as we possibly can. I, I always want to like just like bring this all back to this is what I do. Just like a matter of it's all because it's like this whole system is it's like it, because it's like based on racial capitalism. At first, they're workers who are people willing to throw away because they're black people, they're brown people. But what happens when it starts happening to white people? Right. And then that's when you see all this like wild right wing stuff coming around. Right. And then you have to see people cheer for Elon Musk because he's a billionaire. It turns <laughs> is you know what I mean? Because then I create this illusion. It's like you don't have to be rich white man who's been told you need to have everything as long as another white man is rich it's good it's fine you can live in shreds your life can be bad it doesn't you know what i mean so this one you have to have to bring in this fascism in right i don't know like they have what i would say they have back they have a backup capitalism plan they always do (laughs) there's just something american about that kind of like framework like no one ever thought like maybe we should try to like stabilize this and like give people (laughs) like greedy (laughs) yeah no exactly though it's like but no one's ever like maybe if we just gave people a basic standard of living that would just like not only stabilize the system but allow them to have enough money to like invest in things like futures and children and homes and stuff They're like no we're not going to do that we're just going to like run everyone into the ground and then oh. they're surprised that there's this like constant cycle of boom and bust where mm-hmm. you know it's you know we have like just a leveling of wealth inequality but also you know racial wealth inequity across this yeah. country that just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper well, I think it's it's interesting to me because it's like uh, the capitalists in the U.S. have seemingly forgotten what happened during the Great Depression. Um, because the last time this happened, uh, people started rioting and burning factories down. Right? Yeah. And then and then Roosevelt showed up and was like, cool, we're going to give you all welfare now. So you stop burning factories down. Like, but that's what happened the last time this happened. Sorry. But I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt you one time. He said we're going to give white people, right? Like, yes. still, like, right? So, like, just, like, to address that part, like, is what I was saying earlier, white people are going to get these things. That's mm-hmm. it. Sorry, you can continue. Yeah. Yeah, well, but so why was that done, right? That was Again. done to save capitalism from itself. Like, that's what the logic of the New Deal was. It wasn't, like, social democratic reform or some weird form of, like, capitalist soft socialism or something, which is what a lot of people in the kind of moderate left of the Democratic Party want to portray it as. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was a bailout for the economy. I mean, it created yep. a consumer class that was able to buy things all of a sudden, which allows capitalism to function, right? Yep. All of these people have seemingly forgotten what happens when you try and crush unions, when you throw people out of their houses, when you prevent them from being able to make enough of a living to survive. Well, they tend to burn your factories down. Cause you're mad, but like, this is like the, the undercut of it all is like, it's like, as long as like you always maintain this, like, um, I think that capitalism has also been able to keep itself cause like the racial division, like, you know, right. That has always worked. Right. And it's like, as long as you can always be like the, the black people, they're going to get the short end of the stick, but like, yeah, we don't like, you know, this inherent racism and like, that's fine. We don't really care about them. Right. The system doesn't care about them. That's why we use their bodies and their minds. Right. But it's like it, now it starts happening to white people and like this happens. And when you ask about like how people forgotten, it's because it's not it's not it's forgotten because the stories aren't told because the capitalists don't want to keep these stories around of for us to know how to fight back, how to win. Right. So they're going to they're not going to tell us stories of like, oh, we rose up. How did you guys get the 40 hour work week? Right. You know, 
They're not going to tell us those stories. They because that's they know that once they tell us those stories, they're going to be like, "Well, we can actually just fight you. You mean we can just beat you? Like we can beat you right back? What? We're allowed to do that? They, it's like now they have this like policing of protests where you have to be nice, right? But that's why it's been forgotten. Is because the capitalists have made us all forget because they don't want us to remember. But I mean, like what happens in New York, right? As a response to to this, right? Um, like New York has this really interesting history, contemporary history of political resistance, right? I mean, mm-hmm. going back to the Lower East Side in the eighties, right? And like really and the rent strikes up, and the rent strikes and like the resistance Giuliani and things like this, right? Like how is what's happening now kind of fit into that tradition, right? Because that tradition is really promising and interesting. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of people already, there are people on the ground who are very upset about what's happening. Um, and they're, I think they're fighting and, and I think they're, they're trying to do the best that they can do by like helping people. But I, I hope that to some extent people, I, I hope that more people join. I think that, I think that sometimes people forget like how we treat the most vulnerable of us is going to happen to us at some point. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it yes. sets a tone of how we should be treated in society because if the vulnerable, most vulnerable of us are disposable, what does that say about us when we don't have what we have now? Like I, I think people don't realize that to speak to your point. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I, I hope that it's happening. I see a lot of groups coming together and I know people are working. They're doing stuff. Um, I mean, I can't talk about all of it, but yeah, people are working. People are doing stuff. Yeah. Hopefully the rent strikes that kicked off in New York uh, a couple years ago are just the start of, of larger things to come. And, uh, we've reached out to some folks on Anarchy Row to come on the show and hopefully that happens in the next couple of days. Yeah, they're great. Wow. Yeah. It's like, I really, it's really, really, it's really good. They're doing a lot of really good work. I'm really impressed. Cool. Well, hopefully that continues to grow. Well, do we want to switch gears and talk about um, Twitter? <laughs> speaking, yeah. of, speaking of billionaires. <laughs> Let's do it. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. So where do we jump into this? It, it looks like it may be happening. It looks like it may not be happening. Where do we kind of start off in this conversation? Well, let's start with, let's start there. Um, what is even going on? Uh-huh. Right. And I think that whenever Elon Musk is involved in anything, that's always a great question. Um, <laughs> well, no, seriously, like, dude's been fined like three times already for like saying random stuff on Twitter that impacted stock prices. So, like, he doesn't have a filter and he also doesn't have this concept seemingly that he could fail at something. Uh-huh. And so whenever he gets this idea that he wants to do something and he like decides he's going to do it, then it's just happened. Right. And that's how he portrays it. That's not actually what's happening right now. Uh-huh. Um, Twitter's board has approved the sale. Elon Musk has gotten the funding for the sale, but there's a number of things that might get in the way here. So the Twitter stockholders have to approve the sale. There is no majority stockholder in Twitter, meaning that Elon Musk has to win over the plurality of stockholders in the mm-hmm. company. He only owns 10% of the stock. And so that always gets a little difficult. But even if that happens, I think that there's two other factors that might get in the way here. Um, the first is uh, the law, right? So stories came out today. Um, which have started on media matters, but it's kind of, uh, accelerated from there. But there's evidence that in the process of this being floated as a possible thing, Congress people called members of the Twitter board and threatened to, you know, do things to regulate social media if they didn't sell Twitter to Elon Musk. Um, which is like comically evil abuse of power kind of stuff. <laughs> Give it up um, to Congress for always stepping up when they're not needed. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, we're about to talk about 
next a whole another really ridiculous congressperson thing, but like, and they seem to be happening more and more and more all the time. But this is that would be really egregious and true. Um, that would also mean that the SEC could block the sale. Um, like the SEC has to approve this sale, especially because Twitter's being taken private off the stock market, and uh, they're not going to approve a sale if there was abuse of power and coercion involved. And there's precedent for that. Now the U.S. government can do that. They have pressured companies to sell. They've pressured mergers before. They obviously can break up monopolies if they choose to do so, right? Uh, but all of those are acts of state. Those are not acts of individuals that have a position within the state. Um, like, sure, Congress people do stuff like that all the time, but it's a little bit different when you get caught, and it's a little bit different when it's Twitter getting sold to Elon Musk, right? So now all of a sudden, when right-wing Congress people are encouraging, not encouraging, threatening Twitter's board, to sell to this person, we all know why, right? Can you but explain then, how they did that? I mean, that's yeah. a pretty... Yeah, yeah so How does Congress been, threaten Twitter? <laughs> so there's been, for a long time, the right wing has been talking about liberal bias in social media, which, like, again, if anybody looks at actual research, just isn't a thing um, at all. Most blocks and most kind of posts getting taken down on social media, regardless of platform, are automated, Right. It's not like a human is sitting there canceling people's accounts a lot of the time. A lot of us have had accounts suspended for reasons like this, right? Like we used the wrong word or something and we got our account auto suspended, right? These things happen all the time. And so conservatives for a long time have been trying to create a situation in which not only do they have a, quote, free speech platform, right, which they interpret as being able to say whatever you want without consequences, regardless of what it is. Um, not only do they want that, but they want a platform which is that and also big. And this creates a problem, right? So what they did was they called people on the Twitter board, according to the story, and said, if you don't sell this to Elon Musk, we are going to pass laws which are going to make it very difficult for Twitter to continue to function without government oversight. And for a social media company, that's a major threat, especially if the government decides to start holding them responsible for every single thing that people post, which currently they can't do. But it's only a small change in FCC regulations that would allow the government to, say, find Facebook for every single time someone posts a video of a murder, right? Something like that. Um, so there's that element. And what they were essentially threatening Twitter with that. They were saying, look, we're going to win the midterms. When we win in the midterms, we're going to force this rule change. When we force this rule change, you're done. Like you're finished. Stock is going to fall through the floor. None of you are going to have anything. You're done. But the only way to save yourself is to sell to this guy. Right. That's real shady. Right. That's really, really shady. Um, it's also really illegal. It's right. it's so shady, but also the fact that they already know they're going to win the midterms, which I'm like, they probably are. It's like, nah. you know, like, because it's like, I like they know a game the Democrats like they're playing this special game and like they know what's going to happen. We, if you think about it, like at the end of the day, like Congress is like just a bunch of people who want to like get all this public attention now, it seems all the time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just like a bunch of show outs. Like they want to show out. It's like, who can be the most conservative? Who can own the libs more? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's why, like, conservative people want to be around people who are not conservative because they want to own them. And then everybody else doesn't want to be around them because they just don't like them. <laughs> so then this creates, yes, and this creates the other problem, right? Which right-wing social media platforms, there is a market for that, right? And Elon Musk is seeing this market just as the people who started Parler or Andrew Torba, who's the, like, racist behind Gab or 
any of these platforms, right? Jason Miller, Sir Getter, right? There's Truth Social. There's uh, what is the one that Mike Lindell runs? Frank Speech, right? Which isn't even a social media site. Even and none of these are really about half of these things. <laughs> none of these right, are exactly. really doing well, though, right? Isn't Truth exactly. Social just like not really working that well? So this is the thing. This is what's interesting about this is there is a market for that. That market is not 700 million accounts strong, though. That market's like 2 million accounts strong. That's kind of where Parler topped out. It was about 2.5 million active accounts. Now, there were more accounts, but they weren't getting used. They were, you know, auto signups or whatever. But they really topped out at about 2.5 million active users, okay? What happens on platforms like that um, is two things. First, they start off saying, we're going to let anyone post anything. And then... A bunch of Nazis show up and threaten people, and then everyone else leaves, and you're down to your like small little sliver of users. But in the that Nazis process, talking to each other, <laughs> the Nazis talk, which is what Gab is essentially, right? And but now there's like this other element where if you don't ban certain stuff, like with Getter ISIS accounts proliferated on the platform, and they started posting beheading videos like immediately, and so all of a sudden it becomes this kind of hellscape, like really quickly, because. When we're talking about concepts of speech, when we're talking about the notion of, quote, free speech, that's a concept that exists in relation to government, right? That the government should not be able to limit what people say. Once we leave that space, we're already in a space in which people can say what they want, right? It's a question of venue and so on, but you can say what you want. What they're asking for is not that. What the right wing is asking for is the ability to say whatever they want without any consequences happening without getting yelled at, without getting told that they're wrong, without getting told that they're conspiracy theorists, without getting called racist, and without people blocking them and leaving the platform. That's what they want. They want a captive audience that they can abuse endlessly. But that's not how any of these platforms actually work. And so this leads to a bigger problem, because Elon Musk is not actually doing that well financially. Um, uh, something a lot of people I don't think understand is like, when you're a billionaire, you don't actually have that money. Um, most of it's tied up in stuff. Right. You own companies, you own real estate, whatever. Bill Gates is like the second biggest landowner in the United States now. And he's been buying up factory farm land like all over it's the country really for 20 years. Terrifying. It is it's so really scary. weird. It's like, so yeah, scary. it's yeah. It's I mean, it's Ted bad. Turner did this with half of Wyoming. Right. It's like, like, he essentially so bad. Owns like half of Wyoming. Yeah, it's really weird. And so but these people don't have money like that. Right. The way that they dodge taxes is on paper. They're only making about one hundred thousand dollars a year. But these 600 LLCs that they own that they don't derive any income from own all this other stuff and they're just allowed to use it for free, right? Like that's how these people do this. So someone like Elon Musk doesn't have $44 billion sitting around. He had to borrow that money. And he did or borrow get it that from money. the government. Well, he borrowed it from, I think, Deutsche Bank. Yeah, he um, did. Sorry, for the Twitter sale. Sorry. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he borrowed it from Deutsche Bank. The mm -hmm. problem is, is that $44 million carries a lot of interest. It's a lot to pay back. Twitter already doesn't make money. Um, in eight of the last 10 years, Twitter has lost money. And when it has made money, it has made a very, very small sliver of profit for a company that size. Um, usually it burns cash hand over fist as it has most of its, most of its existence. Tesla isn't doing particularly well, especially right now when electronics components are very expensive. The prices of the cars are going up. People have less purchasing power, right? Inflation is happening. Um, they're having issues. And they're having supply chain problems. They're having issues with customers. They're having issues with recalls. And Tesla, as a company, is sucking money out of Elon Musk's bank account, essentially. And so is SpaceX. And so you're looking at all of these massive companies that he owns. 
and none of them make money. So how is he a billionaire? Well, it's really simple. He creates an image of a company that has some mission that you want to buy into, like SpaceX or Tesla or something like that. And you create a bunch of buzz around the technology and people buy stock. And when people buy stock, it makes the company on paper worth more money. And so Elon Musk can continue to make money just on the idea that his stock on paper is worth more, even if the companies that he's running lose money. And that works when you have a publicly traded company. You can get away with that. What he's trying to do with Twitter is he's trying to take it private. And what that means is he will have to absorb every single loss that that company has. He's going to be the funder for that. He's going to have to have the capital for that. Um, and there's a lot of people speculating that he just doesn't. Um, if his companies continue to lose money and he buys Twitter, it might take Twitter down too. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things still standing in the way of this, but if it does happen, um, eh, things could get really, uh, interesting isn't quite the word, um, bad. Wow. So first of all, you mean to tell me this whole system is a scam? Yeah. Who would have thought? I would have never thought that. I thought money was real and the stock market was literally God's will. Um, (laughs) the other thing, (laughs) like just like the fact that like, it's like shock that this thing that we made up, people can use it to make up other things about themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. But the other thing, okay. So I was just Googling when he finished talking. Uh, breaking views, and I don't know, this is from Reuters, so take it with a grain of salt. Elon Musk probably won't buy Twitter, is yeah. some, somebody said. It's essentially, it's, it, I think it's essentially saying what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Musk has this thing that he does where he just decides something's going to happen. I was talking about this earlier. He decided he was going to buy Twitter. He made that a media reality. But isn't that wild how they can just like use the media to like create our own reality? Like they've created this reality that we live in now and it's all through the news. So it's like, and that's why I think that like obviously all these capitalists want to own all the media because at the end of the day, what we see, what we read, that's what determines our reality. And like, Mm -hmm. that's why we live in this lie of our reality, but we still keep believing it because we're being told it's real. You know what I mean? It's like, well, well, and even and more, that, that even more strange to... is the idea that like a billionaire owning this will be like a win quote for free speech or like <laughs> the dissemination yeah. of ideas that like, oh, yeah. oh, the fewer hands that this thing is in, like that's, that's when things get really interesting. And I don't know, when we talk about society, the spectacle. Yeah, well, it all comes back to like, how do these people view what speech is, right? And I touched on this a bit earlier, but I think it. This is sort of one of the areas in which that becomes very clear. Um, both the idea of speech in the American Constitution, but also the idea of speech as being articulated by people like Elon Musk or these kind of like weird techno libertarian types. Um, it's an idea of speech which has two very specific features, which are absurd. Uh, the first is, is it's a notion of speech in which all speech is equivalent. It's all neutral, right? What I say, what Marcella says, has exactly the same ability to be heard. Now, we know that that's not true, but that's the assumption, right? That voice and sort of social circumstance and, you know, class stratification, things like that just in this world don't matter. Mm -hmm. And that what you're doing is you're engaging in this neutral, quote, marketplace of ideas. So, for example, in this idea of the market, in this concept of the marketplace of ideas, um, they have no way to explain something like the artificial boosting of a concept. So we can take any amount of disinformation that's been thrown out just by 
we'll just use the Russian state as an example because they're really actually very effective at this. Um, and they can hire 20,000 internet trolls to build a bunch of bot accounts to make that idea look like it's legitimate. And when real. in reality, yeah, and real, when in reality, it's a sort of absurd propaganda line that has no validity to it. And so we end up in this world in which the idea that there's nothing true, which fine, okay, philosophically, like, okay, starts to become all ideas are equivalent, uh-huh. which is not the case, uh-huh. right? And so, and then therefore all speech, people that speak are equivalent because we are humans that speak, right? It's a very kind of philosophical enlightenment idea that all humans are rational in the same way. Therefore, all speech is the same, right? It's a really ridiculous kind of idea. Well, it's a ridiculous kind of idea that is perpetuated by the people who would want to take advantage of that idea to do bad. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Well, exactly. Yeah. That, brings, that comes to the second part, right? Speech acts aren't speech acts. Say things, but they're also, they have material implications. Uh-huh. So when you send someone a death threat, it's not the words that matter. It's the fact that you just disrupted someone's entire life materially, right? We were talking about this with Florida. Um, the language that's being used in Florida is intentionally cruel because the language itself is meant to be a deterrent. Exactly. Right? And also and meant to like create violent and punishment for people who don't live up to the standard that has been created, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so in this world of Elon Musk, speech is simultaneously the most important thing ever because it defines us as human. And also entirely pointless and meaningless because it has no effects. Right? Yeah. Which obviously doesn't make any sense. Idea. Yeah. Well, right. then, then why do you have ads? <laughs> they don't work. Why do you exactly. have them? Why do you have them? They don't work. It's just like we're, it's, it's the contradictions that makes it easy for them to like maintain the system because they are constantly lying. But because the lie is the lie, the lie is the lie, is the lie is the lie. Right. You forget right. what the truth is. And so there's this big question, right? Um, I mean, this was a huge problem with, uh, Cloudflare getting rid of Daily Stormer. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a bunch of techno libertarian types that are like, that's bad, blah, blah, blah. I got into a <laughs> really epic argument with someone. I'm not going to say who about this. And one of the things I said is, look, the Daily Stormer isn't about people discussing political theory. The Daily Stormer organizes attacks and you're trying to tell me that we aren't, are, yeah. As we would any other attack. Yeah, right? like this what? Is, like, so you want to like scream at me. This gets ridiculous, right? Yeah, you want to scream at me, but you don't want me to scream back. You want me to keep speaking slowly. And then I think a lot of it is like people just like remove, like for just conveniently forget like these speech acts, whatever, mm-hmm. have like, as you said, real physical consequences for vulnerable people in this world, you know? Mm-hmm. It's when you create a culture that allows you to say bad things about certain groups of people, that means that they're not as important and they're disposable, right? Mm-hmm. And like, so once you create that language, the language is what prompts action, right? It's like, it's like racism, right? You could, when you say a lot of racist, racist things, racist acts start increasing, speak towards certain groups of people. And that determines how society determines the value of those people. You know what I mean? And it's like, yes. well, and this was the thing that, or five years ago, there was a really wide disparity, social disparity amongst Twitter users in which Twitter users were way more white and way wealthier than the places that they came from. And when the research was done about this, it was really obvious. And I, I think probably uh, not just obvious, but like 
the only possible conclusion one could come to if you think about this at all, which is that, well, people people don't like going onto platforms where they're yelled at and called derogatory names. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's really they don't that simple. Be there because they'll just like they're like I'll leave. Like there's been like um was it Leslie Ardones who was like driven off of Twitter mm-hmm. um yep. because of news. Like it's like it's like when you say all speech is equal when it's not a but b also when that speech is heavily heavily determined by how wealthy you are, how white you are, how cis you are, how male you are, you know, how hetero, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's like the gaslighting of the, what is it? How many years of human, has he, capitalism been around for? <laughs> the gaslighting of like centuries, like just constantly gaslighting. So we don't know if Elon Musk is going to be, is going to buy Twitter. <laughs> we don't, we don't, but I think the thing to I keep in that. mind, people have been, really freaking out about it and i think that there's justification for that but it's really this question of well what are we going to do right so we had the same conversation when facebook decided to nuke our account and crime thing Mm -hmm. um and we started we helped start a social media platform right we started collectiva.social all of y'all should join do it everyone should join right because that is a space in which we can have productive conversation Right. In which we can actually discuss ideas in which things are not about, quote, owning people, but are really about coming to more productive understandings of stuff. That's actually useful. Right. Younger people that I talk to use Instagram and TikTok. They're not even really using Twitter and Facebook anymore. And so we need to start to think about what does our relationship to not just social media, but any third party online service look like? Um, and unfortunately, I think too many of us rely on Twitter for a lot of our strategy, a lot of our mm-hmm. outreach strategy and things. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter can be a part of that. But as this goes forward, if Elon Musk is able to buy this, do not expect this to be a quote free speech platform. What this is going to be is a right wing platform. And our accounts are very likely to get nuked pretty quickly. Um, that'll be contradictory. It'll be really weird, but those people won't care because it's really not about quote free speech. It's about gaining political advantage, right? Exactly. And also, you know, I just thought about it. A lot of it is like maybe like at the end of the day, sure, it's like they want to make money. But also it's like these places are also like recruiting ground for like fascists. You know what I mean? So it's like if there's nobody there to check you and be like, you're for saying that, like, you know, even if like you say that and somebody doesn't believe you, they'll be like, maybe I'm. But like if there's no one even in there to be like, don't do that. You know what I mean? Like you're just going to get worse and worse and then it's like a way to recruit more people and there's no one to prevent you from recruiting people because there's no voice of reason being like this is wrong you know so this this was this is discussed um this has been discussed in sort of recent recent kind of histories of you know radical hacker scenes in you know 2010 11 12 era um when anti was breaching police departments and things like that that was sort of a very public face of, of a whole community of people who were thousands strong that were really, really heavily involved in countering things like fascist propaganda online and countering right wing organizing activity and things like this just very, very quietly. When the feds came after anarchist hackers really hard, like they did, a lot of people disappeared because um, they didn't want to go to prison. So they disappeared. It was in that moment like six months after that, that Gamergate started and there was nobody there to stop it because everybody was, was dipping out. Everyone was going quiet, going dark. Um, there was no way to stop it. And it's that inflection point, that moment in which the Nazis took over 4chan and in which the Nazis took over Reddit 
happened in that window, right? That's what happens when we're not around. When there's no one there to understand speech as a material entity, as a material thing which occurs, which has effects, and to be able to counter that in that way. That's what happens, right? So we already know what could happen on Twitter if something like this occurs. We saw it happen on the entire internet in about 2014. It's how we got Milo Yiannopoulos. Seriously. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, we are humans, and like, as much as, like, the reason why people don't like to be criticized is because they want to keep doing whatever they're doing. Yeah. And so even if they don't agree with you, if there's a lot of people calling them an ass, it kind of makes them feel bad. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, that's what it's about. These people want to do bad things and not feel bad about it. Yes. They want they want to be actually lauded. They want people to love them. And at the same time, they want those people who they say that bad about to read that bad. Mm-hmm. And it's also, like, baby, like what? I mean, also the impunity is part of the point, right? Yeah. So Donald Trump can say racist stuff. Elon Musk can sound like an absolute idiot, right? Tim Pool can spout random conspiracy theories. And part of their willingness to do that is to prove that they can. It's a power play thing. It um, is, but it, it like, it works because people, like, twisted people are, um, twisted people are attracted to that because they want to be able to do that. They want to be able to yell at people and say mean things and have not those people not say anything back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, we see it with all, all these interviews with Trump supporters in 2016 about why they voted for him, right? Which I think a lot of people wrote those off as disingenuous. But for a second, let's let's take those interviews seriously. Let's let's really talk about what people were saying and what they were saying. A lot of them were that's the guy from The Apprentice. He's a good business person. He's from The Apprentice. And I saw him on TV be a good business person. And really what we need in America is a CEO, right? Like that was always the line that, that people would say, right? But the thing is. Which is such is, a bizarre statement. Like so weird. when else during your life would you ever say that? Like, hey, there's a new manager at our, at our business. You know what? I think he's going to be great. He's really going to run this business like a business. Right. You know, he's really going <laughs> to cut corners and cut our wages and watch his profits just go through the roof. It's going to be great for us. Yeah, it's because everybody loves their boss, right? It's why no one has ever written jokes about bosses before, ever, right? Um, like, yeah. Also, just like, this idea that, like, if you're a business person, you don't have need to have any other skills. You've succeeded in the, this thing called life and the world and crushing others, so it's fine. You can, you can do this. Anyone can do this. And so part of it with Trump, part of this portrayal of this character, which it is a character, um, is the fact that he can get away with it. It's the power that one expresses when someone says something patently ridiculous and gets away with saying it. So this was uh, people who study Stalinism talk about this, right? This is kind of a weird reference, but bear with me for a second. People that talk about Stalinism talk about this. I love how you just pull this random stuff out. I'm like, <laughs> what? Who is and why? <laughs> so in Stalinism, one of the things that would happen, especially during the years of the Great Purge, which were like 1936, 1937, um, the, the regime would say things that were patently absurd, right? Like, notably, no one could understand this in a way except to say that it's completely absurd. And then they would look to see who repeated it. Mm. Because if you repeated it, you were loyal. Because the repetition had nothing to do with the accuracy of the statement. It had to do with the power of the thing that you're loyal to. Right? If you didn't, well, during the Great Purge, you got executed or sent to the gulag, right? But it wasn't about the statement. It was about the power expressed in forcing people to repeat it. That was important. 
Right. Yeah. We see that a lot on social media. Well, yeah. And it's also like a lot of like, who's allowed to like move up in companies. Like when they talk about culture, you have to have our culture. What they mean is like, you have to be as bad as we are. You know what I mean? Like, are you willing to watch human suffering without empathy? And like, if you don't, if you're not, they're not going to let you, you know what I mean? Like they have a process where they decide who becomes lead, like who is, who are business leaders and who takes leadership in companies. They don't want somebody with empathy or caring. First of all, somebody with empathy or caring would never want those positions, but you know what I mean? You have to prove to them that like you, you're going to keep doing the thing that they want you to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so we said this during the discussion about Facebook, like a couple of years ago, year and a half ago or so. Um, these places are hostile territory. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we, we treat mm-hmm. them like tools and they are right. That's part of what they are, but they're also hostile spaces and they're hostile spaces, not just in the sense of users being hostile, uh, but they're hostile spaces in the sense of the entire structure of the space is grounded in a profit motive, which is inherently hostile to what we're trying to accomplish. But then there's also the idea that social media fosters a form of discourse, which is in itself inherently grounded not in productive hostility, but in the sort of really destructive hostility that prevents anything from getting done, right? Like, I'm not a person who for a second is going to say no one should be hostile to stuff. I have a lot of hostility towards a lot of things. Um, but what happens online is this discussion, all discussions get reduced down to like hot takes and 140 characters, and there's no way to actually explain a point. So what it all becomes is people screaming conclusions and assertions at each other. That's no longer discourse. That's just advertising and it's just everyone advertising at each other. Right. And then we wonder why any sort of concept of information, any sort of notion of a political discussion, anything is completely broken down. It's because it's all been reduced down to this. Right. So social media is hostile in this way as well. One of the problems that a lot of anarchists have, myself included, is um, anarchism is an actual politics. Right. It's not an ideology. Um, ideologies are simple to explain. You can say, well, Lenin said this, and then we're going to have seven generations of, you know, the quote, new person and then communism. Right. And that's really easy because it's a political fiction. You can tell fiction really easily. Ooh, you're about to um, get attacked. Whatever. Tankies can come after me all they want. <laughs> Anyone, any of them want to argue about state and revolution? I am game. Um, but. But the other thing, so like what kind of happens in that structure is you can't have complicated discussions, right? And so when you start to talk about a politics which involves concepts of epistemology, notions of how we exist in the world, notions of autonomy, notions of uniqueness, right? In which singular historical solutions are not possible because that would reduce life down to a place in which it would no longer be life. Well, that becomes impossible to explain in 140 characters. And so on some level, social media itself becomes hostile to complexity, right? And it reduces everything down to these kind of verbal fights. Um, that's not a space that we should be trying to engage discursively. It's a space that we can use for outreach. But really, I think increasingly, we all need to see it as just that. And it's nothing but that. And it's not going to be a space we're going to get much sort of productive output from um, in any sort of way. So you mean a cap, a system that breeds on exploitation of others and minimizing messages created a platform that does the exact same thing? Yeah, right. Exactly. Like who would have thought? No, no, you're right. And, and it's like, it's also a huge part of it too, is that a lot of 
the thing about social media is that it cre- it also like sucks up people's times and resource people's time and resources, right? Yeah. Like, and and it prevents you from imagining. Like, you know, when you like are not on your phone, you can think and really think about things. But people are constantly on their phones now, and that's the other aspect of it, right? Too though, right? It creates this different imagination that's so removed from the world that you live in because the thing that's on screen, as you said, can by by design, not include every aspect of the world that you live in because it has to be concise and short, right? And that can't explain the human experience. But that's why we spend most of our time now and we're removing ourselves more and more from the actual human experience where that becomes our reality. Mm-hmm. And that's why what's said on those platforms is so important. And that's why it's so important to not have so much hate on it because that becomes a lot of people's imagination and reality. Because they're not on the ground. They're not doing stuff. They're not talking to people. A lot of people are lonely. That's where they spend all their time. And that's why yeah. it is dangerous. And that's why it is violent to let it just go to the worst of us. You know what I mean? It also expresses a certain idea of the self, right? Social media is grounded in a certain concept of the self, which is inherently capitalistic, right? Yeah, you like, see this with Elon like you're a brand. Like, this is my brand. You're not a person. Yeah. Well, and, and so what is that, right? Like, if we think about the capitalist self, the capitalist self is this atomized economic unit. Right. Exactly. Wholly self-contained. Right. Without any influence from the outside. It's sort of John Galt from the Fountainhead. Right. Um, just a person who just succeeds completely by their pure skill and blah, blah. Now, that person would be mute in that speech is social. And so without any out without any influence from the outside, that wouldn't be from you. Uh, you wouldn't be able to speak to people. Right. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be able to have words at all. Concepts anything right Mm -hmm. so when we start to talk about existence existence is necessarily shared right and like this is not i mean this is a concept marx talks about but it's like what is history history is the dynamic of the shared actions that we take together right um it's the outcome of everything that's ever occurred it's not a linear narrative which has some sort of logical outcome in six or seven generations or something it is actually a much more complex phenomenon Right. So when we start to atomize that, when we start to separate that, really what we do is we start to eliminate that sort of essentially the effects of our actions. Right. The things that come together to form history. And we end up with these ahistorical Mm -hmm. atomized selves, which sort of exist again, like getting back to what we were talking about with speech, exist as these neutral beings, which are defined by rationality, which rationality is defined in a very specific way. And that everything they're saying is just an expression of that rationality. And every act, therefore, is just an isolated atomized act that are all equivalent to one another. And then all we do as other atomized cells is select which ones of those we like. That is the vision that Elon Musk has of humans. And then we wonder why, and and the social media companies have of humans, and then we wonder why social media is a hellscape of people screaming at each other because there's literally no social in social media, the concept of the self that forms the basis of that entire way of interaction prevents the idea of the social from even existing. Yeah. And also, like, it destroys your imagination. Yes. I mean, and that's the crux of it all is like when you're isolated and you're viewed as being a rational being, what happens is that you start believing that and then you start believing only the things what rational as you said what rational means rational means like it's proven we've seen it happen before right you lose the capability and ability to understand and then also like because history is like painted in a certain way when you create something so small 
you're you're lying mm-hmm. because you're you're not allowing other aspects which are very true and real to be allowed to be discussed, right? And you call those things irrational, right? Imagining a world where we could care about each other. Oh, that's irrational. What? I would see a world where we just don't give a fuck about each other and just step over people who are homeless. That's irrational, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like, what do we determine to be irrational when it comes, like, that's the world that it's creating. It's like, the idea of like, what's rational is what's happening versus what could happen. And I think that's political violence, like, it's political violence, but it works. Yeah, it's deeply effective. I mean, this is, this is why the right wing focuses on social media so much is so what we're trying to achieve is this radically social thing. Right. We're trying to sort of engage historically in the situations that we find ourselves to kind of unleash the possibility of that. I mean, that's what anarchism is at its core. Right. But um, it also heavily relies on somebody who believes that things that they've not seen is possible. And yeah. And it also relies on somebody being on the ground and connecting with other humans and doing stuff, you know? Yes. Yes. And so with right wing politics, none of that's necessary Yeah. because right wing politics only requires an atomized individual doing some prescribed action, namely voting or going to a Trump rally and maybe screaming at someone online that allows them to feel involved without actually creating a social circumstance. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really fascinating way to watch politics happen because we're really watching um, millions of pundits scream at each other online and call that politics. It's a show. And that's why now it's all about like, it's come down to like own the libs, you know, like that's Mm -hmm. what it, that's like, that's literally what happens. That it's like, you just have these people who like, it's almost like, it's like, um, like a reality television show. And it's like, who's trying to be the most popular kid in school? You know what I mean? It's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say the meanest thing and see if people reacted. Like, remember when Ted Cruz was like saying something and then looked at his phone immediately to see like if he was like trending on Twitter? Because that's what our people's reality have become is like, are you trending on Twitter? Are you viral? Are you on social media? That's it. Yeah. And so what does that mean when politics becomes aestheticized like that? It's a spectacle. Uh, yes, exactly. And and the idea of principle or the idea of even having politics that is articulable and able to be explained disappears. Well, yeah, because and if, it's even looked down upon as like, you're just trying to be smarter than us. You're just trying to be complicated. Exactly, exactly. And so... It all comes down to a question of effect, right? When the right wing is talking about politics, they are purely talking about the concept of effect at this point. There is not even a goal anymore. Remember, in 2020, the Republican Party did not pass a platform. They literally have no policy platform at all. And yet they're engaging with this like vigor and anger constantly about what? Because they're not trying to do anything, literally, according to themselves. They're just trying to keep people angry. They're trying to get people angry all the time about everything. And they're trying to win. Yeah. Because right-wing politics is about winning. But winning what, right? What are they trying to win? That's the question. That's the thing that you have to, like, highlight. Like, it's like, what does winning mean? I think winning for that means that there's a bunch of white people who still don't understand that they have more in common with poor black people than rich white people. Like, I think that's what winning is to them. Mm-hmm. Or like, the, you know, the transphobia, the homophobia. It's just a way to fracture society. And they're winning. And they're doing a good job. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the thing I mean, about them. Because they know you, what's important. You can see it with the national conservatives, right? So like Josh Howley, people like this. Um, at their most recent conference, some like half the talks 
were about using governmental force to eliminate your opponents, right? Um, which is fascism, not some, well, fascism, and also not something that before like 2010 you would ever hear Republicans say because they were quote the party of small government, right? Uh, they wanted to do that, they did do that, but they would never say that that's what they were doing, right? Like Nixon obviously did that, but was always constantly being like, oh, it's not going on, blah blah blah, right? Now they're just owning it. And what's interesting about this is it's not that they talk about the authoritarianism as something which leads to anything. The authoritarianism is the point, right? They talk about it as social stability, quote unquote, namely the elimination of difference. But that means that the authoritarianism is the point, right? There's no goal to it. There's no point to it, right? The goal is to control people. The goal, like that's the end, but that's the, that's the inherent end of the state. It is to control people. Yes. Yep. At, at the end of the day, like that's the only goal is like to turn us into and to control people for the sake of capitalists, right? To turn us into these automatons that, you know, it's like, a, did y'all watch that movie iRobot? Oh yeah, long time ago. Yeah, like, sure. do you do you remember that scene where like they have these like the robots like go into their trailers at night and they're closed and they come out and work for the people and go back? Yes. Like that's what they they're talking about us. That's what they want. <laughs> They just don't want us to think and be like, this is, this sucks. I want to hang out. I want to have fun. Shut up. Like, you know, like that's. Have you ever yeah, seen Blade what? 3? <laughs> <laughs> Where they, they have everybody in like a little Ziploc bag and the vampires are taking the blood out of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have not watched Blade 3. You haven't oh, seen you Blade, gotta 3? Watch Blade 3? It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely the worst Blade. <laughs> Also the best blade. It's definitely the worst, worst blade, but also the best to explain our political situation. <laughs> as far as social commentary goes, it's 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 up there. Bad movie, good intellectual exercise. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds is in there. He's a little funny. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Oh my god. Yeah. No, that is so true. But you know what? Um, I was thinking about it too. That like, okay. So I was really high, so bear bear this with me when I thought about this. And please stop me if this is going way off, like, way offline. I was, like, thinking about this. It's, like, the stuff that they feed us, the propaganda they, they feed us, is, like, the matrix. It's, like, this blue pill, you know? And our humanity knows that something is wrong with it, but they have to keep on feeding us that blue pill, you know? Like, we have to keep taking it. And that's what this messaging is. That's what it is. And it's supposed to override the senses inside of us that we know that this is inherently fair, unfair. Like, we know that this is inherently bullshit, you know? So they use this messaging, and they use it to target different groups of people, and they use different types of messaging. So it's like, everybody has their own special type of blue pill, right? And for, like, a white dude, it's like, your blue pill is like, black people are terrible, women are ruining your lives. Like, you know, all, like, that's your blue pill, right? Because in order for you to be okay with human suffering, somebody has to explain to you why that's okay. Mm -hmm. And, like, so that's the blue pill. Like, and, like, to override our humanity to be like, well, that's not fair, you know? Um, And... That's what the social media platforms are like. It's they've just managed to do it in such a smart way. And we spend all of our time there. And there's millions of us there. And then we don't talk to each other as much anymore. So we don't even really know what other humans are like. So it's so much easier for us to just like label them because we don't interact with them. You know, it's like medicine to destroy our humanity. And it's like wild. Yeah. And it really raises this question, which is what happens after social media? Right. Because more and more and more, this is how people are talking about it. It's this destructive force. Um, we're already seeing things. I forget the name of the platform, but there were a bunch of news articles about this week. Um, it's a new social media platform where you're only allowed to post once a day within a very specific time window. Mm. Um, that's it. And you're allowed to post something as long as you want. 
You can have video, but you can only post once a day. I like that. And you cannot comment on people's posts unless you know them. I kind of like that. Yeah. That is an attempt to maximize the benefit of the internet, which is the ability to talk to anyone and get any information you want um, at, the, at the tip of your fingers, right? Um, it's absolutely incredible tool to have access to or, you know, ridiculous, almost infinite number of tools to have access to. But um, they're trying to figure out, people are trying to figure out a way to maximize that without having these kind of destructive side effects that we currently see with social media. And I think as, as anarchists, we, we need to be not only involved in conversations like that, but we need to be having conversations like that ourselves, right? We need to figure out what happens for us after social media, right? And it's funny because it's, I was talking to a friend about this, uh, who's been doing this stuff for a long time. And we were joking about how like back in the day when we got involved, like you knew everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because if you were a jerk, no one would tell you where the shows were. <laughs> and you, I'm serious. <laughs> like you, you'd go to the shows, you'd sign up on physical mailing lists. And then if the people in the band thought that you were okay, they'd send you tickets to the next show. And, but if you were a jerk, you wouldn't get tickets anymore. And so there was like this element in which we were able to organize then. I think it's hard for people to imagine now, but there was a time in which organizing looked like biking to the print shop that printed your flyers, grabbing a plastic shopping bag full of 5,000 flyers and going around to every coffee shop on a list that you have to drop stacks off because you're all taking a bus ride down to DC to protest the Iraq war. That's what organizing used to look like. And what happened in that situation is things were a lot slower. We didn't move nearly as fast, um, but there was a lot more resiliency to things. That's what I was going to say, because the the part about it is like this, this things about going things going viral, but people forget it the next day. Right. Yes, but it's like, if you, yeah, if you've had like conversations with people in real life, that's going to last a whole lot longer. And also because it's harder and you put in the time. You didn't just tweet one thing. Like, I remember somebody tried to tell me that I was an activist. I was like, no, I'm not. I literally talk shit on TikTok. Like, <laughs> like that is not activism by any means. That is literally just me getting talking shit on TikTok. You know what I mean? Not this idea that if you say something that's important, I'm going to put that in quotes, and you're an activist. And it's like, mm, but are you like are you really doing stuff like and also this idea of like also like turning activism into a job has been another thing mm-hmm. but that's a whole different discussion mm-hmm. uh but one thing i wanted to say is like martin sostry do you guys know of him the name sounds very familiar yeah yeah he's like anarchist an anarchist i'm like um a black guy from um upstate new york i believe he he's one thing that he says is like we have to fight the culture war the culture was it's it's i would argue the most important because as anarchists, we're trying to change people's minds before we start. Because it's like, if you start a revolution and there's only two of you, you're going to be like those dudes in Michigan. Like, also, <laughs> like you're going to lose. You know what I mean? Like, it's not going to work out. It's not. You need the numbers, right? And, like, part of it is, like, you have to convince people that things are not right. What you're bringing up, I think, is interesting because some people would say, like, well, the culture war is a distraction from Mm-mm. talking about other stuff. So I guess, like... How do we intervene in a culture war when the right is basically mm-hmm. setting the agenda saying, well, the culture war is the unionized teacher at your school is actually an undercover gay who's trying to groom your kid. <laughs> it's like, how do you intervene in that? Just, just say Well, like- I mean, that's, with situations like that, it's like you do what, uh, 
people were saying earlier, which is like the reason why like Fortran and all these people rose is because nobody was checking them. You have to check them. You have to absolutely check them. And you, you have to, and I think another thing is like beyond, like right now you're right, we're, we're just being reactive. And I think we have to go a little bit further even and start creating our own propaganda and be like, listen, being a person is all that matters. All the other bullshit is bullshit. You know what I mean? Like the racism, the transphobia, like we have to reframe the conversation and stop being reactive to like, we have to set the culture because right now we're just reactive. We're just like being like, stop, like. We see the racism and we're like, you shouldn't be racist. But how do we have a deeper conversation about how do we create a society where racism doesn't exist? We have to change the culture because the culture now is that racism is okay. Transphobia is okay. Homophobia is okay. And that's why we're just like on the defense because cult capitalism has set that culture. And that's why we have to have conversations. And I know it's like silly, but it's like spiritual. I don't want to use the word spiritual, but like things like Bell Hooks did. Like, you know what I mean? Like she wrote different. She just talked about people loving people and how that's contrary to capitalism. And to me, that's creating like a different way of speaking. Like we just have to change the language and create a different culture. Yeah. And, and different mechanisms to diffuse those messages. Right. And exactly. like this is really, this is really where it gets complicated because right now, what are we doing? We're, our mechanisms of diffusion, our mechanisms of discourse, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, um, we have absolutely zero control over. None. Yep. None at Abs- all. We are mm-hmm. at the whims of Mark Zuckerberg and potentially Elon Musk and, Whoever else decides to run a social media company, right? Yep. Um, and we have absolutely no ability to impact that. So just think about it strategically for a second. If we are wholly dependent on something that we don't control mm-hmm. for our outreach strategies, mm-hmm. maybe that's something we should change. Yep. And so we have to start thinking through this question, not just about how we talk to each other in language and things like that, but the ways that we actually connect, right? Mm-hmm. That when we all were signing up on mailing lists and getting tickets mailed to our house. Everything was very immediate, right? Mm-hmm. I knew everything about the Nazis in my city because I knew the people in the ARA, right? Mm-hmm. And they told me about it. And like, I didn't know anything about Nazis like two states away, but I knew everything about them in my own backyard, right? The internet has allowed us to understand what happens two states away and build a more systemic understanding of those things and, and, We've used that understanding very effectively, but it's also had this other effect. And so there is no answer to this question right now. But I think the question I want to pose to people to think through, um, you know, in between episodes or whatever. Um, Are you giving people homework it? on the podcast? They're not. Gonna- I am. I give people homework a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving people homework again. But yeah, I mean, really put some thought into like, what does it look like for us to utilize this? you know, global network, right? Which does despatialize things often and does kind of take us out of our immediacy very often, uh, but also can facilitate the things that happen in the situations we live in, right? How do we start to maximize that effect in our local situations and our local circumstances to build really resilient networks of resistance without sacrificing the ability to have discussion and discourse in the process. You know, one thing to just close on for me on a positive note, um, <laughs> you're like, we're going to end an episode. want to make everybody happy. Sorry. I was supposed to bring the jokes today. I did not. I did not. I was, I was, I didn't have it in my spirit. My soul was like, we're not making anybody laugh today. We're going to make them cry. So thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things I found inspiring was, uh, this weekend in Seattle, there was a mutual aid uh, fair that 
anarchists and other people put on. And, you know, we've been promoting it in our upcoming events page for a while. And it's just kind of this little flower image and it said mutual aid fair. And, you know, I thought like, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, some people come out to it. A thousand people came <gasps> out to it. Stop. That's uh, amazing. The park. Cal yeah. Anderson Park, which is sort of like the, the you know, ground zero for the rebellion in, in Seattle. And it was groups all across the Pacific Northwest, I read, were involved in, like, doing different mutual aid projects and stuff. And there was all these tweets online, like, how awesome it was. And people were showing, like, all their their anarchy swag from, like, zines and stickers, like, mutual aid stuff they got, which is awesome. And uh, to me, that just shows – or even, like, you know, what you were talking about with um, – before we started recording – I believe you're talking about in your building sort of the, the meetings that you all have and talking about yeah. these issues that like, are happening in New York. Yeah. Well, we're talking in our building. We're having, we're, we're currently in our building. We're organizing against our, um, that's, that was a separate, com- but like in our building, we're currently organizing against our, against our management company. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it has to do with like people talking about eviction, like, yeah, like seeing people's eviction flyers and these conversations are going to come up in the meeting because now we have a place to talk about them. Yeah. And, and it's too flyering. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess I guess my point is that, that despite like how powerful social media is, and people are still hungry to like go out and like yeah. meet face to face. And I feel like with everything we do, we should be pushing towards that. People linking up and actually like creating human connections and actually struggling against these systems which immiserate all our lives. And I feel like you know. Again, to me, that's one of the reasons I'm an anarchist because that's the point in which some of these things can shake loose and we can start to view each other as people and start to struggle, you know, against common things that are attacking us together and move forward. And just seeing these things like in Seattle or just talking about the stuff in your building, I find really inspiring because it just shows that people are still very capable of that despite everything going on despite all the horrors of you know daily life and i'm you know i am still hopeful of the future and people coming together and hopefully the stuff that we're doing is aiding that yeah i am honestly as as negative as i do sound i am hopeful as well especially because like just like seeing people respond to eric adams like clearing this encampment like people have been like you know what i mean on it People want to, people, people care. Like, they haven't destroyed all our humanity as much as I'd like to. It's not going to happen. We're here. And that's what gives me hope. We're, people are still here and we're going to keep fighting because we just have to. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.